Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. When a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power, that sets in motion severe structural stress. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Ben Pauker, FP's executive editor for The Web, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and joining us from Cambridge is Dr. Graham Allison. Dr. Allison is currently the director of Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs and served in the first Clinton administration as Assistant Secretary of Defense. He's the author of Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap, which was released last month. And joining me in Washington is Christine Warmuth, an FP shadow government contributor and the director of the Adrienne Arsht Center for Resilience at the Atlantic Council. She was previously the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy at the U.S. Department of Defense. And finally, David Wertheim, the founder of Tea Leaf Nation, FP's China Channel. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. Have episode ideas or comments? You can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So, Graham, I was recently taking a look back at the old FP archives, back when we were a little journal to slip into a a jacket or a blazer, and I found a piece from the first issue. Now, I'm not going to date you, not say how long ago, but this was back the winter of 1970, so you were probably 15 or 16 at the time that you wrote this. I think it was just before Lincoln, yes. (laughs) Uh, And you had this line that jumped out at me. Uh, It reads, and I quote, Imagining again how things will look to the historian of the year 2000, I would be prepared to bet that the distinguishing characteristic of the next 30 years will be the retraction of the power of the United States and the concomitant emergence of other national and international centers of power. Now, you know, we're 17 years ahead of that grand prediction, but, um, you know, it seems pretty prescient. Did you think you'd be writing about China as that center of power all the way back then? Well, uh, certainly not. And thank you for remembering that. And I'm sure you could have pulled out some other lines that would uh, not not read as well. I chose the good I, ones. I I uh, don't remember the piece vividly, though the general proposition that said that coming out of World War II, the U.S. basically, if you think of it globally, had a market share of 50% of world GDP because the other states had been mainly defeated or destroyed. And that therefore... That position would inevitably recede, as you saw the recovery of other states. Uh, I mean, that was the basic, you know, bet at that point. China had not really figured on my screen that vividly till, say, the last 10 or 15 years, where I kept uh, sort of stumbling over China. I've been looking mostly at the Soviet Union, the Cold War, post uh, Cold War arrangements. But I kept stumbling over China, and then uh, eventually found my way to Lee Kuan Yew, the founder and builder of Singapore, who basically served as my tutor on the topic. He's somebody that I had known before and admired greatly, and I think unquestionably the world's premier China watcher. 
uh, until he died two years ago. I actually wrote a book about him, which is a great book because 90% of all the words in the book are his words. I just basically, with a Bob Blackwell, did the questions and he did the answers. So the, 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 the fact is, as I argue in this book on the rise of China, that certainly for those Americans who haven't been watching carefully, this is just stunning. It's even impossible to believe. Never before has a nation risen so far, so fast, on so many different dimensions. Basically, a nation that wasn't even in any of the league charts 25 years ago has now leapt to a position of rival or even surpassed the U.S. in many dimensions. And while Americans don't like the idea, and especially red-blooded, even red-necked Americans like me, you know, I know USA is meant to be number one. In fact, I put out a challenge for maybe one of your listeners will be able to rise to it. I'm sure somewhere it is written, either in the Bible or in the Constitution or somewhere, USA means number one. So I know for sure that's who we are and that's what we should be. But it's a fact that China's economy today, not in the future, today, is larger than the U.S. economy measured by what both the IMF and the CIA judge as the best yardstick for comparing national economies. That was the big takeaway from the 2014 IMF World Bank meeting. And if you go to the CIA or IMF website, you know, that's what they'll say. But the newspapers continue to say, you know, China, the number two economy, blah, 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 because it's just very hard to recognize. In fact, I have a quote in the book from Vaclav Havel, the former uh, president of the Czech Republic. And he says, things have happened so fast, we haven't yet had time to be astonished. I mean, so we've got China as the as the world's largest economy. I think it's still as the world's largest population. It has been spending a lot on the military in recent years. Uh, and then we hear these stories of, you know, cities emerging out of the rice paddies of Shenzhen. And, you know, this great migration of people uh, from the innards of the country to the coasts, taking, what is it, you know, 400 million people out of poverty into a middle class, the greatest we've ever seen, you know, thousands of, tens of thousands of miles of high-speed rails, highway systems linking the entire country, and all this really in the past 10 or 15 years. But your book is called Destined for War. So, you know, I explain to our ER nerds a little bit about, just give us the quick 30 seconds on Thucydides' trap and why this is you know, a pressing sort of intellectual issue that we need to think about. So thank you. So I think your ER nerds will have heard of Thucydides. Thucydides was the founder of history, the first person to actually try to get the facts down exactly as they happen so that we can read about them and not make the same mistakes over. Thucydides wrote in the Peloponnesian War about the great uh, competition between the two great city-states, Athens and Sparta. And in one of the most famous lines, he wrote, it was the rise of Athens and the fear that this instilled in Sparta that made war inevitable. So Thucydides' trap is a term I coined to try to make vivid for all of us to remember this storyline or this basically axis in international politics. When a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power, that sets in motion severe structural stress that leaves both very vulnerable to external actors or events that would otherwise be inconsequential, but which can, given this severe structural stress, trigger a set of actions and reactions that ultimately end in war. So Bethy, Athens and Sparta didn't want a war. They got entangled by Corinth, one of their allies, and Corfu, 
which was an independent uh, entity at the time. In the, if I give my example in the book, I look at the last 500 years. I find 16 cases when a rising power threatened to displace a ruling power, 12 of them ended in war, four of them war was averted. But if we look at something like World War I, which I think is one of the most troubling cases, which I have a whole chapter on, basically the, nobody in Britain or Germany wanted the war they got. What happened, how, how could the assassination of an archduke, whom nobody really cared about, have struck a match that produced a fire that pr- created a conflagration so devastating that by the end of the war, historians had to invent an entirely new category, World War. So it makes no sense in the same way that it makes no sense that Kim Jong-un, with his antics on the Korean Peninsula today, could drag the U.S. and China into a war that not one single person at the Defense Department thinks would be sane. And I don't believe a single person in the Chinese equivalent thinks would be sane. But because of this inherent structural stress, because China is emerging and is challenging us in many, many fronts. And the U.S. has been the dominant power. And through that dominance has actually provided the international order that has given us seven decades without great power war, that actually created the conditions in which China has been able to emerge. So that condition, as I say, leaves both parties vulnerable to external events or actions that could end up triggering something that neither party wants. Christine, at the Defense Department, I'm sure you and your colleagues thought a lot about the rise of China. What are some of the flashpoints that that gave rise to fears that, you know, there could be a confrontation? Graham mentioned North Korea. I'm sure the South China Sea uh, was sort of a big one, yeah? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, first of all, at DOD, I think many people are very focused on, obviously, how to try to avoid the Thucydides trap. Um, you know, I don't necessarily subscribe to the to the theory that it's inevitable, but certainly there is the potential for miscommunication, miscalculation, and given the scope and depth of China's military modernization in the last decade, you know, we have to be careful. And I think at DOD, uh, in terms of flashpoints, we absolutely were concerned about South China Sea, you know, going back to as early as uh, well, with China and the Nine Dash Line, with their activities around Scarborough Shoal, with all of the you know building of the the Great uh, Wall of Sand, that got a lot of attention from DoD, and a lot of thought went into that. But also uh, places like the Senkakus, frankly, I think is another flashpoint in uh, East China Sea, and that was why it was important for President Obama to be very clear when he was in Japan at one point that that in fact our alliance with Japan did cover the Senkakus. I think another potential flashpoint that we worried about a lot at DOD vis-a-vis China was, of course, their cyber attacks, uh, which were growing in scale and scope, um, although we did have some, I think, constructive dialogue with them about that. So they, they I believe, may have dialed that back somewhat. Uh, I, I agree completely with what Christine said, except on one point I want to be sure I'm not misunderstood. So in this book, I do not argue that war between the U.S. and China is inevitable. Indeed, I say in the book, I, my purpose is not to forecast the future, but to try to prevent it. I say that under these conditions, war is much more likely than most people recognize, but that we need to recognize this danger in order, as Christine rightly said, to do everything we can do while protecting our vital interests to avoid being caught in Thucydides' trap. And so I say in the book that, and I went back into the original Greek to try to get a better sense for this. Thucydides, when he said inevitable in that famous line, 
was actually exaggerating. He knew that he didn't mean 100%. He just meant very likely. Well, the title is Destined for War, so your editor or whoever wrote that book title uh, was definitely... It wouldn't be the first time when uh, an editor or publisher insisted on a title. (laughs) You've you've done this before and you know, but the the subtitle says, Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap? Fair enough. Well, look, you know, the the nature of the relationship has greatly changed, uh, obviously, over the past 10 or 15 years. You know, Christian, you're mentioning the South China Sea and the Nine Dash Line, which is this sort of enormous oblong marker on a map of where China claims its influence and sovereignty in the waters of the South China Sea that extend way beyond the dominion of, you know, 200 miles out from the coastlines. But that's already changed. I mean, the U.S. is now sailing, you know, uh, aircraft carrier groups through those waters and what they call freedom of navigation routes. But the Chinese are building. They've got the islands. They've got this territory. So even in that sort of one marker, China's exerting an influence that shows that, you know, it is not going – whether you think it's going to be an expansionist power or largely a status quo power that is, you know, focused on building its economy, the relationship is changing. Absolutely. I would say Thucydides wouldn't be surprised by any of this, nor actually should Americans if we – paid more attention to our own history. Uh, One of the chapters in the book I like the most, and I think some of my American colleagues like the least, is called, What If She's China Were Just Like Us? And I know Christine probably has, I'm sure I have, uh, when I was in the Defense Department, given lectures to other countries about why they should be more like us, more responsible, you know, share more of the burdens and so forth. But actually, I say in this chapter, what about us when Teddy Roosevelt arrived in Washington 100 years ago plus, 1897, 37-year-old young man, number two person in the Department of the Navy. Teddy Roosevelt thought it was an abomination, as he put it, that these foreigners were in our hemisphere, especially the Spanish in Cuba, but also the British and the German fleets in the Atlantic. And he was determined to do what he could to get them out of here. And in the decade that followed, there was a mysterious explosion on a warship in Havana, the Maine. The U.S. took it as an occasion to declare war on Spain, liberated Cuba, took Puerto Rico, took Guam as a spoil of war. That's how we got Guam. Then supported and sponsored a coup in Colombia to create a new country, Panama, which gave us a contract for the canal that Teddy wanted to allow the fleet to transit between the Atlantic and the Pacific. Then threatened war first with uh, Germany and then with Britain unless they butted out of a territorial dispute in Venezuela. And then the piece, the one I like the most in the chapter, is we basically stole from Canada the largest part of the fat tail of Alaska that does this 500-mile separation from the sea. So, Ah, the good old days. If we we should, looking at things from Beijing, and I talk to, as Christine does, many people in the Chinese military, they look at it and they say, wait a minute, what is the U.S. Navy doing as the arbiter of events in the South China Sea. That's our. That's as much our lake as the Caribbean was thought to be his by Teddy Roosevelt. So, David, what does China want? What does Xi Jinping <laughs> want, right? Goodness gracious. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I know, what, that's a big one. Sure, what does China want in the, at least uh, as those desires are amalgamated in Xi Jinping? Well, you know, I think, I mean, Graham, I think your book, uh, you know, in broad strokes is correct as to, as to what Xi Jinping wants. You know, he he views himself as, uh, first of all, I think that the savior of 
the Communist Party, which risks you know falling uh, apart under the weight of its own corruption. Um, he he desires a restoration of China's rightful place uh, in the world as a center not just of uh, of commerce but of culture as a moral center uh, of China. Look, I think I think the I, I think everyone in every country roots for their home team, right? And, you know, folks in China like the idea of being number one the same way anyone likes the idea of being number one. You know, I think the, the, the question is how that gets defined and whether that's defined in a way that makes room for no other sort of number one, right? And I think, you know, the, obviously for, you know, the United States, I think the idea of giving China a massive sphere of influence in Asia where it can be number one uh, in sort of that in that sphere is is not acceptable. And so we've got that that essential conflict. But, you know, China already has a massive sphere of influence in Asia, both by dint of its economy and its military. I mean, it is the largest trading power with virtually every country in Asia, I would bet, without looking at a you know, CIA statistics in front of me. You know, the U.S., and maybe you can help us with this, Christine, the U.S. sort of uh, attempted during the Obama administration the pivot to Asia, right, which was... The rebalance. The, <laughs> the rebalance. The, but the yes, re- right. often called the pivot. Which was, um, you know, intended to focus more energy and investment and resources away from the Middle East, away from the wars of the Middle East towards Asia. Could I, before you, could I just flag something that Graham uh, mentioned in his book, which was shocking to me, that a source told him that approximately 80 percent of the National Security Council meetings after the announcement of the pivot or the rebalance were still devoted to the Middle East. Um, so I thought that was kind of a shocking statistic, but I'll, I'll certainly defer to yeah, you. Yeah, you know, I, I uh, don't have the stats in front of me. But I think it's absolutely – it wouldn't surprise me at all if a, if a large majority of our PCs were still on the Middle East, um, you know, particularly after 2014 with the rise of ISIS. But that said, and I was undersecretary from 2014 to almost the end of 2016, we had lots and lots of meetings on Asia as well. And President Obama and his team were extremely focused on trying to make good on the rebalance. Um, so, you know, I would argue as a as the leader of, you know, as a global power, the United States has to be able to walk and chew gum and then some. Uh, and we could we could do what we were doing in the Middle East and still pay attention to Asia. You know, two comments I wanted to make is one, it's not just to your point, David, that, you know, countries root for their home team and for us to cede a sphere of influence to China is unacceptable. It's it's also, frankly, I think not acceptable to many of the countries in the region. You know, they mm-hmm. don't want the United States to uh, leave the Pacific. We are, you know, I think in many cases, China is the preferred economic partner uh, for all of the reasons that we know about the incredible growth and scope of their economy. But in terms of security, I think many countries in the region view us as the preferred partner. So, and my view is, you know, let's aim for a situation where countries don't have to choose between U.S. and China. Uh, you know, I think it's a very difficult needle to thread, but but I think we should be trying to be able to create space for both China to rise, but for the United States to be able to stay there and be a force for stability as we have been for the last 50 years. And I think you've really also hit on one of the other tension areas, which is that, you know, e- even Ben, as you mentioned, you know, China in some case has a great deal of influence in Asia already. I won't call it a sphere of influence in case that's too tendentious. But 
nonetheless, it is enmeshed in this global system of rules, but that it feels that it was sort of written into these rules after it, you know, after it was too late for it to have a chance to really shape those right. institutions. All the so, post-war exactly. Bretton Woods institutions were the authored IMF. by the mm-hmm. United States. Europe was the, the victor. The victorious powers were thrown in there. And China was given a seat at the table in the Security Council. But really, you know, the U.S. is the dominant power. Exactly. And you could, exactly. You could see this uh, uh, playing out. I did say make two points because I agree completely with both both what Christine and what uh, and what David said. You can see how you can see the stress playing out in the international financial institutions, the World Bank and the IMF, because when the Chinese wanted more votes, we said forget about it. You know? And uh, there's one, you know the rules are set up in both institutions that one power and only one power has veto power over uh, changes in the rules. Imagine who. Us, okay. I like that very much from our point of view, but I can understand why China would not like that from its point of view. And then what will China do? I'd say let's look and see what they have done. They've created a complex of their own development banks that now make four times as many loans as the World Bank. So if you want to get a big loan from a developing country, you go first to China, not to the World Bank. And then the IMF, we're seeing a similar uh, sort of pressure. I think ASEAN is another institution which I think is a great institution and which I think people have done a good job trying to build up. But this is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Yeah, under severe stress as a bigger, more powerful China thinks, I don't want to have a gang to deal with. I would like to deal with guys one-on-one. As a big power, I always would prefer to deal with a little power one-on-one. So I think we're going to be... Uh, our imagination and energy is going to be tested to try to maintain the relationships that are crucial. And I would say Japan is, a, a, you know, they're the most crucial. But South Korea, I think, is going to be a very stressed case. ASEAN, I'm, I, I would not, I wouldn't bet long on, the, say, the Philippines. I would say they're coming, basically sucked into the to the uh, to the Chinese tentacles. David, you know, we hear the statistics that Graham has thrown out and read about, read about them in this book and in the newspaper about the, the remarkable, you know, astounding historical rise of China. And it's true. I mean, I, I remember I was there when I was uh, a little kid back in the uh, 80s, early 80s. And, you know, it was mal jackets and bicycles and friendship stores and, you know, you had to have government minders to go anywhere. And it was a remarkably backwards place. And, you know, most recently I was uh, in Beijing and Shanghai last summer. And, you know, you're snarled in traffic jams, but the the pace and, and the, the scale of these places is exceptional. And they're, you know, bursting with energy and vibrancy and capitalism. But, you know, there's there are certain projects, whether it's the subsidized building of highways or – uh, military expansion or, you know, Xi Jinping's One Belt, One Road. I think it's called the Belt Road Initiative now, <laughs> which are the – or, you know, the the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank that Graham mentions or the massive amounts of foreign aid that the government has, you know, given to countries in Africa for influence and for opening markets. And with far fewer strings than the, the ones that come with our checks. Absolutely. So, I mean – is this growth sustainable? There are certain, you know, bubbles and endemic pressures and still a great deal of poverty within China. So, you know, is this – are these sort of like the teenage years, the thrusting out of the chest at this point that makes Americans, as Graham writes, afraid 
um, but can it sustain this growth? Yeah, that's a that's the the big question for China to face. Certainly, if I were uh, an able enough prognosticator to say I'd probably be richer than I am right now, uh, journalism was a bad choice. Didn't my mean friend. to yeah, <laughs> no, you know, didn't mean to ding you know the the salaries of journalism. Uh, I will say though that I think this is something that that China is well aware of, right? And falling into the proverbial middle income trap is something that's going to face a country. I mean, look, I think we, we, we talk about China surpassing GDP and uh, the United States in dollar adjusted GDP as well as purchasing power parity, which it has already. But for it to get anywhere, I mean, it's not going to get anywhere close to the United States in terms of per person GDP, right? So there's there's still a huge wealth gap between you know your average or your, your median Chinese income earner and your American income earner. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I think it's, it's virtually barring a collapse in China's economy, which is these things can always come out of the blue. Due to the power of compounding, it looks very likely that the Chinese economy will nominally surpass the U.S. economy at some point, even with sharply depressed growth rates. And we often you know, talk about an economic slowdown in the context of a 6.5% GDP growth rate. Well, that, you know, that, that's going to double your GDP in about 11 or 12 years. Um, so even with a continued slowdown in the growth rate, it's going to be off an ever larger base. And so I, I think that goes back to sort of how we define being number one, right? Um, if being number one is, is a GDP top line number, then things are likely to change. If being number one means you know, delivering the goods to the individual citizens and providing them the best quality of life, that's a very, very different discussion. Can I just make a brief comment on David's? I agree with all those all those points. I would just give or underline two points I have in the book. First, I just think we can't get our heads around the the scale of China's growth. There, you read in the newspapers from time to time about, oh well, India is now going to run, you know, grow faster than China, or India may have even more people than China. Every two years since the Great Financial Crisis in two thousand eight, every two years, China's increment of growth has been bigger than the entire GDP of India. So you're looking at the, whoa, wait a minute. Secondly, uh, while China's growth has slowed, quote, to 6.5%, the question for the U.S. and China is relative growth. And the U.S., while China has slowed to 6.5%, has done what? Barely 2%. Barely 2%. So China's continued to grow at more than three times the rate of the U.S., and, you know, there's the Chinese – I'm not sure if they still use this sort of mantra, but there was the – for years it was the notion of a peaceful rise, right? Is that right, David? Mm -hmm. They called sure. it the peaceful rise. And, and I think that was in part because the Chinese leadership understood that it was – while the economy was booming, there was so much domestic stuff they needed to work out, people to pull out of poverty, infrastructure, corruption, governance issues. But Graham – you know, why should the U.S. fear a peaceful rise? Well, peaceful rise is one of these great uh, sort of slogans, and it was Deng Xiaoping's. And actually, if you want to grow big and strong and you don't want anybody to notice, it was also called in Chinese, hide and bide. So it wasn't like we're not getting bigger and stronger, and it wasn't like we're not going to get even sometime. It was just we don't want to have anybody bothering us now. Now, why Xi Jinping has uh, basically... Uh, retired Biden Biden is, has the more assertive China, I think is another long and more interesting story. And I'm sure David has some insight into this. But basically, my take on it is that he's legitimizing 
the rule of the party, given that communism has died. So there's no no communists in China. I think I can find more communists in Cambridge than in, than in China. <laughs> but he's trying to justify the fact that a small party of two or three percent of the population should be allowed to rule everybody else. So partly he justifies that by their performance. We, we deliver the goods and so let us drive the bus. But the other part is resurrecting Chinese nationalism and being proud of being Chinese. And so I think that's the other element in this. And I think it's, it's one that's understandable because I think as, uh, as one of, somebody said earlier, you know, you root for the home team and being number one is something you can aspire to. But as Chinese come to think of themselves as bigger and stronger and deserving more say and sway, Thucydides would say that's exactly the kind of behavior that can even become hubristic and lead to mistakes or lead to the notion that something has happened externally, it offends your honor, and therefore you need to respond to it in a, in a more dramatic fashion. So I, I think that it creates additional danger. And just to piggyback on Graham's comment, uh, something interesting about Chinese nationalism, I mean, that has been a factor for quite some time. And the prevailing narrative among China watchers for many years had been essentially this. The Chinese government created something of a monster by inculcating nationalism in uh, students from an early age via its educational system and then had to be responsive to that domestic sentiment, lest it appear in its dealings with foreign powers not to fulfill the implicit promises made in that nationalist curriculum. Um, what's interesting now is that that is, is that's sort of not what we say anymore because Xi Jinping has been quite overt in you know nodding at that sentiment in his public statements. Um, and so it appears that the sort of the Chinese government has decided or maybe Xi has decided and thus the Chinese government has decided they're not worried about being burned by this flame, that it's more important to sort of redirect the power of this flame and amplify it. And that's just interesting because for, for quite some time, it was conventional wisdom that the Chinese government had a little bit of regret that it had, that it had pursued nationalism with such vigor. You know, I would just say, first of all, I would not underestimate at all, you know, the sort of the, the rise of China and the incredibly impressive economy they have, and again, the huge investments they've made in their military. But I do think, you know, when I think, I, I do think they have some challenges that I think we should not lose sight of. And I, I sort of think of it as the three E's plus corruption. The first E is the economy, which, you know, while again, I think all of the points that have been made here, it's it's still, you know, at a very impressive growth rate. But, but fundamentally, the compact that she has and the Communist Party has is just as you said, you know, we'll give you the goods and you let us drive the bus. And there's a lot of pressure to be able to keep that going, particularly when you bring in the other two E's, which I see as energy. China has enormous energy requirements. And the actual amount of resources that it has is not sufficient to meet the demand that it needs. So it's going out there everywhere looking for energy sources, nuclear power plants. And I think there are a lot of challenges that China faces in that regard. The third E is the environment, you know, in part related to the energy challenge and all of the construction and the economic growth, huge environmental problems. And, you know, you see people from China leaving China because they view the environment as basically toxic for their own children. Uh, and certainly, you know, I've been to Beijing a few times, and sometimes I've been fortunate, and it's been blue skies in Beijing. Other times, it's been completely oppressive, and it's you see people with masks all over the place. And the blue skies are the remarkable days, right. notably. <laughs> exactly. So I think, you know, China does have huge challenges that it has to grapple with 
as it rises. And that's and there's also the, the corruption issue, which is, I think, a very core point in terms of its ability to govern. So I just think we have to, you know, even as we are concerned, I think, about uh, a lot of the dynamics that we see in the U.S.-China relationship, it's important to have sort of a balanced leisure. And I think sometimes we lose sight of some of the challenges. You know, I'm, I'm glad I'm not President Xi trying to manage my way through all of that. Let me let me agree with Christine entirely in this. Add one more to it. I think governance. I'd put a G in your list. So basically, Lee Kuan Yew pointed out that trying to run a so-called responsive authoritarian structure government in a day in which you have smartphones and everybody essentially knows everything basically is an operating system that you can't sustain. So I think, just as we have, I believe here at home, big questions about American governance that we're more familiar with. I think the governance issue will be a big question for China going forward. I think that uh, I absolutely agree with everything that's been said. I also think if you look back to, to Susan Shirk, who's a, a China scholar at UCSD, she had this great formulation. You know, Basically, China and the U.S. are both these superpowers that from the outside uh, are viewed from the outside are quite formidable. And on the inside, both have a keen understanding of their country's flaws and often see in the rise or in the strength of the other country, sort of a, a, a reverse mirror of the flaws of their own country. And so they project their weaknesses into strengths on the other side of the Pacific. I mean, I think we're sort of getting it back to this issue of comprehensive national power as distinct markedly distinct from GDP. Um, and that's really China's problem, that, that you know, given its resources, particularly its human resources, it can put up some gaudy numbers. But you know, just cleaning up the pollution in China's soil would cost its GDP, its annual GDP many times over. Obviously, governance is a big issue. And you know, the, the government um, is generally in good graces until suddenly maybe it isn't. Um, and the US is, is in many ways, I think, internally much more robust than that. That's another reason perhaps to like our odds a little bit better than that historic, that 500 uh, year batting average of 250. Well, the, the batting average is about war and war between the US and China would be crazy for both parties. So I think we got to be extremely interested in the danger and finding ways to prevent the war. The challenges that the Chinese have are huge, absolutely right. And the challenges, I think, if we're being candid about our own society are also huge. So I think if you if you could imagine adult supervision, which of course as students of international relations, we know that there is none. So there's nobody above Trump and Xi that can sit down and say, guys, be adults for a minute. But if there were adult supervision, I think an adult would say to both of them, you have so many problems within your own country that if you focused on those for 25 years, you could find a way to deal with your the, the problems between you pretty easily. And I, I like Thucydides. In Thucydides, he admires Pericles for having negotiated this famous 30-year peace, which basically was just a respite for people to work on their own problems first. It ended up breaking down after, I think, 17 or 18 years. But it would be a good idea in the current situation. Well, look, I think we've had an ER record. We've gone almost 40 minutes, and we just mentioned Trump. So, Christine, what do you think? I mean, are we more likely to get into conflict with Donald Trump as the president of the United States? I mean, during the campaign trail, he said that the Chinese were raping America. He called them a currency manipulator. He came pretty much short of threatening war. He has certainly dialed it back uh, since becoming president. But do you feel the, the, you know, 
the makeup of the individual or the the sort of nationalism he has stoked makes it more likely to stumble into conflict? Not necessarily. You know, I was struck by an earlier comment. I think it was Graham who brought up the Philippines, and that triggered in my mind, you know, the importance, frankly, that individual leaders can have. And I think part of the reason that the Philippines are drifting into China's orbit is because of Duterte. And Duterte has a very different view than the previous um, leader of the Philippines. And in the same way, I think, you know, President Xi is an important as an individual leader of China. He has a very aggressive, powerful stance. And President Trump also is going to have a huge impact. For me, the concern with President Trump is not so much the possibility that we might stumble into war, you know, notwithstanding all of his heated rhetoric about China. It's my concern, frankly, is more about the things that President Trump and his administration are doing to, frankly, in my view, abdicate some of the important positions of U.S. leadership, leaving a vacuum for China to fill. And that, you know, his decision to pull us out of the Paris Climate Agreement, his decision to terminate the Trans-Pacific Partnership, those were all things that I think, frankly, you know, the Chinese Communist Party was probably delighted uh, that that happened. So those are the things that worry me. I think, you know, the potential for a crisis in the South China Sea is there. But I think in the situation room, there will be people around President Trump that I think will help him manage through a crisis as much as either country can manage through a crisis. And I, I mean, in Graham's book, Graham, you, you ably lay out the way in which a minor conflict uh, between the U.S. and China could mis- metastasize into something quite horrific. But I, I did want to try to sound a note of optimism. Um, oh, come on. I, this is not the place I, for I know. It's, it's, a, it's an unusual tact. But you guys me, are let me take agreeing a, way too much. I'm not doing my job. I know. I, well, I, I'll try to be more disagreeable moving forward. Uh, but you know, as I read Graham's book, I, I started to think of Thucydides' trap less as a trap and more as sort of Thucydides' odds, right? What are the odds of something really horrible happening? And, you know, looking at some of those statistics, you know, 250 batting average in terms of achieving actual peace is pretty bad. But if you look from the 20th century onward, I think we're batting 500 as, it, as a human species. So maybe, maybe we've learned a little bit. And when you look at the U.S. and China, I mean, you've got – I don't know what happens if you adjust some of these statistics for uh, things like distance between the established power and the rising power or you know, the aggregate amount of trade uh, between the, the two powers. But I think both of those tilt in favor of a lasting peace. So I, without – Referring to the the disposition of our president, I think there's a number of structural factors that undergird the relationship and make it a little bit less likely for Let us to— Let me agree with the structural factors. In the, in the, this book is not uh, fatalistic or pessimistic. And I think if I do the structural factors that you could imagine building on to have a constructive relationship with China, I think first is the bedrock of nuclear weapons— We have conditions of mutual assured destruction, so everybody knows that an all-out war between each of us would kill both of us. So that's pretty solid. That was an important part of the Cold War. Secondly, we have economies that are so entangled that if we were to have a war with China, Walmarts would be empty and Chinese factories would be producing stuff they don't have anybody to send it to. And besides, we wouldn't be able to get a loan. Third, climate. If either of the parties does everything it can conceivably do to address the climate challenge and the other does nothing, there's no solution. So this is a problem that only can be solved jointly or fail to solve. So that's three pretty big, big threats for both parties that we could imagine using you know, to build on. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, when I look at – I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I would say we're likely in for a very dangerous first year of Trump on, in part because – 
A new inexperienced president is always very risky. But secondly, what's happening on the Korean Peninsula, I think, is, you know, we haven't focused on sharply enough. Kim Jong-un is, unless he's interrupted, going to test an ICBM that the CIA will say can deliver a nuclear bomb against the American homeland. Since the instant that he heard of this, when President Obama told him during the handoff from you know, the President Obama to President Trump about this, Trump went out immediately and tweeted, not going to happen. Maybe maybe Obama wouldn't deal with it, and maybe Bush wouldn't deal with it, and maybe Clinton wouldn't deal with it, but I will. I'm telling you, this guy is not going to be able to launch a nuclear warhead against the American homeland. So in order to prevent that, unless something happens, I hope something does, and maybe the U.S. and China will figure out some way to do something about this together, though I'm dubious. So Trump is going to come to a fork in the road in which either he's going to have to eat his words. Now he's shown himself to be quite capable of that and very, uh, I think, adroit. Or he's going to attack North Korea launch pads just the way he attacked Syria with cruise missiles, which is easy to do. But play out the game from that point. And I think as Mattis said, uh, testifying last week, the next step is a North Korean step that rains down artillery on Seoul. can kill a million people in the first 24 hours. So then you're back to the second Korean War. And in the first Korean War, again, most Americans will have forgotten, but in the first Korean War, uh, when the U.S. was marching uh, rapidly towards China's border, China entered the war and beat us right back down to the 38th parallel where the war had started. And this was a China that was 150th our size. And it was going up against the world supremo, who had a monopoly of nuclear weapons, and had just five years earlier dropped bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II. So from the Chinese perspective, at least when I talk to them, they say, we've settled the matter that should be clear enough to you. We're not going to have a unified Korea that's a military ally of the U.S. on our border. And I think, I look at this and I think, yikes. You know, this is, again, another place where you would wish and pray that somebody from a very adult level would sit down with the parties and say, guys, this crazy fellow Kim Jong-un may, by his own behavior, drag you to somewhere you don't want to go, to a war, and then figure out, okay, so now what could the two parties do together to deal with it? I think, you know, Graham, I would... I share your pessimism about the possibilities for U.S. and China to find ways to work together to solve the Korean Peninsula problem. And I think that's because while I think both countries are not interested in seeing North Korea have a nuclear weapons arsenal, our our interests in many other ways do not align. And so I just think there are inherent limits to how much cooperation we can have. I do think that President Trump has shown that he will walk away from his tweets, you know, when it serves him. And so the fact that he's saying things that he said, I think he will potentially just walk away or conveniently forget that he ever tweeted those things. I do think that Secretary Mattis is purposefully saying the things that he's saying publicly about the catastrophic nature of a war on the Korean Peninsula. You know, he is saying that not just for the American public, for but for the, the, the internal government, I think, to absorb. 
Um, and when and, he was in when he was in Shangri La for the security conference there, you know that was sort of a reassurance tour for America's allies and military leaders in the region. Yeah, yeah. And the, the other thing is, I think you know, even on this podcast, maybe a week or two ago, there was a good discussion, and Corey Shockey was a part of it about the 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 problem that Kim, if you're Kim Jong Un, you know, the track record of nations that have willingly given up their nuclear weapons doesn't look very good, and all you have to do is look at what happened to Gaddafi. So I think we do need to think about how. How do we assure him that our policy is not regime change and that if he were somehow, you know, through negotiation or what have you, a, a part of an armistice, you know, peace agreement to give up nuclear weapons, how could he be assured that his regime would remain intact? And and I was at a conference quite a while ago in Vienna where people raised some interesting ideas about China maybe doing sort of extended deterrence for North Korea, which I was not an idea I had heard before, but I thought was sort of intriguing. And I think, you know, we need as much fresh thinking on this problem as possible because not a lot of good ideas that I've heard in the last 20 years. And you're right to point to the fact that, I mean, certainly the Kim regime doesn't trust the United States. And it's questionable how much trust exists between the North Koreans and the Chinese. I mean, that's a, you know, Kim and Xi have never even bonded. <laughs> right. Much less bonded. From everything I've heard, you know, Xi Jinping, when he speaks of North Korea, speaks of it with nothing but contempt. Um, and so, like, who is left as a broker? Um, no one. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I was at a discussion with somebody, a high-level Chinese person who, who talks to Xi Jinping from time to time, and he always refers to Kim Jong-un as the brat. It was absolutely clear that there was zero affection for North Korea, and they would be happy to have a different regime there if anybody could figure out how to do it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm uh, glad that I've steered this conversation back to the precipice of nuclear war from the optimism before, but I, I will say one of the things that gives me a little bit of optimism, Graham, you know, you brought up the, the, the Korean War. You know, America and China back then were fundamentally uh, opposed ideologies. I think probably the context between uh, the heads of state uh, and the peoples were very limited at that point. And, and David, I want to ask you this. I mean, I would imagine that the way Americans view the Chinese and the way Chinese, you know, the average Chinese views the Americans is a lot more positive, certainly from back then. But, you know, those the relationships, yes, there are strong strains of nationalism in both countries. But, you know, you don't see anti-Chinese protests or really strong anti-American protests. Yes, you read it in the propaganda papers and you'll see it, you know, from Trump's, you know, trade and political advisors. But by and large, it seems like these are two, you know, superpowers and, and you know, great civilizations that have a lot in common, like a lot of the same things and are coming together and closer than before. Yeah, I, it's a really interesting question because, I mean, clearly – um, you know, young Chinese folks have essentially bought into the global monoculture such as it is, right? It's a very American-inflected global monoculture. I do think that that can be a bit deceptive. You know, that is – that doesn't mean that, you know, anyone has forfeited their sense of what the national interest is. Um, some of that's, uh, you know, some of that appropriation, you know, is not necessarily meant as flattery. Um, I, I think – you know, and, and for a lot of folks in China, you know, Western tools, whether they're cultural, whether they're governance tools for reform, are viewed as useful to the Chinese state in assisting China and its civilization in its rise. But that doesn't mean that it's a mark of approval of the West. So I think it can 
I think you can be fooled a little bit, you know, when you walk around Beijing and you think, goodness gracious, you know, everyone's wearing jeans and it looks so different, of course. Everyone likes Kobe and everyone Kanye. Everyone likes Kobe. And, uh, and yet, you know, you'll talk to someone who's a huge Kobe Bryant fan who will then give you an earful about, you know, how they feel about the U.S.'s freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. So it's a little more complicated, but I agree that certainly you don't have the potential for the massive cultural misunderstandings um, that would have existed even 50 years ago. Let me let me ag- agree, but also then most importantly disagree. So first, I think absolutely right at what David said, and I think wh- what you said to start with, Ben, that the you don't have the ideological conflict that you had before. But the way that this war, the way the U.S. would or in China would get into this war, if we just take the scenario that I was developing, is we are doing we would be pursuing a natural consequence of something that happened triggered by Kim Jong Un. That would then be reunifying the the Korean Peninsula under Seoul, who, who is American military ally, and that would normally happen anywhere else except it just happens to be on the border of China. So China, if it entered a war, which I think it w- would likely do, to prevent that, would not be entering a war to fight us in ideological terms. It would be simply about the fact we're not going to have an American military ally on our border. We're too big and we're too strong for that. You should understand that. And if you don't understand that, we actually fought a war already once about this, and 50,000 Americans perished. And if we want to fight another war, you know, go for it. And I think neither party would choose a war, but each could choose actions that, if I go back to my World War I scenario, would lead us somewhere where nobody wanted to go. And we are back to the precipice of war. Uh, Well, I'm glad to end on that note. Graham, thank you for this book. Thank you for being with us. Christine, it's great to hear your perspectives and experience. And David, eh. (laughs) well, we're happy to have you. You're editing that out, right? Yeah, yeah. we'll we'll, we'll strike that. Uh, And thanks, ER Nerds, for listening. We'll catch you next time. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Ben Pauker, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much for joining us.